0: Alright, I want you to notice 2 Timothy two fifteen that he read there, well known scripture in this passage, but it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to start out with that passage because that's one that I often have thrown at me quite a bit, and I'm afraid it's a passage that we've allowed the dispensationalists to hijack from us. And one of the things I, um, you know, I'm gonna tell a little bit of my story on how I came around this subject. I at one time was your typical uh, pre-trib, pro-true Baptist. And I I followed all those things. I, I read all the left behind books. I had all kinds of uh, other books. I have Tim LaHaye's Charting the End Times book. I had all those things. I read Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth a couple of times. And so, you know, I knew what I was supposed to teach on these things, but the Lord used many things to Uh, to change my mind on this and um, but this this verse 2 Timothy 2 15 of course after I changed my mind I when I would start talking to people and showing them what the Bible says they kept telling me brother Tommy you're not rightly dividing the word of truth you got to rightly divide the word of truth listen if you're not rightly dividing the word of truth boy, you're gonna find yourself in a mess you're gonna get in a mess and I've heard many preachers preach messages against what we teach uh, probably to an unhealthy level, but understand you know before I was going to come out on this I wanted to make sure I was ready to defend my position and so I did I listened to a lot All right, and I kept hearing this you're gonna get in a mess if You don't rightly divide the word of truth And you know what does that term rightly divide even mean because according to the dispensationalist crowd It means to you know kind of chop the Bible up You got to figure out what's to the Jew and what's to the Gentile and what's to the Church of God and this right here is proof text all the time that they use that everything we teach is wrong because we're not rightly dividing so what they've done they have defined what rightly dividing means they've attached a definition to it and said you know this is what it means and these guys don't do that therefore they're wrong but listen what what does rightly divide mean well it's actually real simple the term you know rightly divide the term rightly it means correctly remember when esau said thou hast rightly named him jacob that was correct in naming him that because his name meant a supplanter and jacob he was kind of a tricky felon he said you've rightly named him jacob the term divide many times you would see the term divide used in the bible it would talk about them dividing up the land well what would that mean they're kind of sectioning it off sectioning it off but then they are distributing it distributing it to someone they're giving a part of that land to someone and when we rightly divide the word of truth what we are doing Is anytime I preach I can't preach the whole counsel of God all at once I can only take one subject at a time and so whatever section I take all right whatever division of the scripture I use I need to preach it correctly because if I don't if I don't rightly divide I'm gonna preach one subject one day and then I'm gonna preach another subject another day that might end up completely clashing with what I preached before and then I have a confused congregation I've got people all messed up, they're going to start asking questions, and I'm going to be ashamed. And some examples of not rightly dividing is, you know, you have people that will teach things, you know, they'll teach things like, you know, justification is by the blood of Christ. I listened to a pastor one time, he preached on justification It is on the blood of Christ. That is proof we're saved, the work that Jesus Christ did. But then he preached another message later saying that if you don't have works, you're not saved. That were basically preaching were justified by works and and the one message he preached was great but then the next one it was complete heresy and I was like okay what side is this man on okay that his messages were clashing with each other and so if the pre-trib doctrine is something that I believe is not rightly divided and I'm going to show you why and I mean rightly divided in the correct term and so Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 24 okay Matthew chapter 24 well a passage that we all know well and the the pre-trib doctrine we see greatly where they clash and so what I'm doing right now I want to kind of I want to try to debunk pre-trib arguments all right I've got ten of them I'm gonna try to debunk I don't know if I'll get to all of them that's not I'm not gonna hit all the arguments they've got but what I'm trying to do right now I want to show you kind of how these things were debunked to me in the order that they were debunked because Before I changed on this, Matthew 24 just messed me up. I just, I never felt honest about how he preached it. And coincidentally, right after I started our church, we were kind of uh, getting ready to have our charter service, and I was teaching people on our statement of faith, and I was going through things, and of course, we had the pre-trib doctrine as a part of our statement of faith. And I had someone in the church who who just, he? I went over to his house to visit him. He said, I just got a couple questions. And one of them was on the rapture. And he said, you know, um," he said, I've always thought it came after the tribulation. And I said, well, where did you get that from? And he went to Matthew 24 and he said, isn't that the rapture that's happening after the tribulation of those days? And I'm like, and I I went into my explanation, all right. And I'm embarrassed about my explanation I gave. And I walked away from that explanation like, that wasn't very good. And you'll know, coincidentally that last that man's last name is Anderson. I don't know. I mean, something in something in the name, I guess. But I went and I gave him my explanation of Matthew 24, and I never felt good about it. And you know, for a long time, even before when I was an assistant pastor, Matthew 24, it always drove me nuts because I was like, we're we're missing something here. And we had one of these prophecy gurus that came through our church, and he preached on Matthew 24, and he taught how the budding of the fig tree was Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not it. And you know, and I said, I'm not going to go into everything, but I'm like, there, there's no way. I just, I wasn't buying it. But it, it became a fact. I heard that being preached over and over again. And I was talking with some people one day, and I said, listen, there's no way the budding of the fig tree was Israel becoming a nation in 1948. I said, that doesn't make any sense. And I remember I told them, I said like, when you go through Matthew chapter 24, okay, if the budding of the fig tree, I remember I said this, if the budding of the fig tree is Israel becoming a nation in 1948, then the rapture has to come after the tribulation, and that would mean it's post-trib, and we know that's not true. (laughs) So I said, the only way that can make sense that the rapture comes after the tribulation is if, Matthew 24, it's to the Jews, right? And so that's the the budding of the fig tree is a sign that the Jews are supposed to see. And so the sign that they're going to see is us getting raptured out. And then the 144,000 are going to get saved. Now, isn't that stupid? All right. Now, let me tell you everybody I talked to thought it was stupid, too. But I kept telling them that's the only way to make Matthew 24 fit with the pre trib doctrine. Because do you see the rapture coming after the tribulation? And so I, I explained that to this man, you know, and he was nice about it. He didn't tell me I was an idiot or anything, but he was like, oh, okay. You know, it wasn't really that big of a deal to him. But I was like, you know, I'm going to have to straighten these people out. Uh, and I had another family in the church that uh, their pastor was what he considered mid-trib. And it was very close to what we believe. I'm like, man, I got two families in my church. Neither of them know who Pastor Anderson is. All right? At the time, I didn't know who Pastor Anderson was. And so I'm talking to other pastors and I'm asking, hey, how do we explain Matthew 24? Because this, this isn't lining up. And then I would get the classic, have you been listening to Steven Anderson? And I'm like, Who, who's Steven Anderson? Well, guess what I end up doing? Who's Stephen Anderson? And you know, <laughs> uh, kind of come across some of these things. And most of this was early on, before after the tribulation had even come out. But anyway, I, I'm trying to figure out Matthew 24. But listen, we believe that Matthew 24 is the rapture. We see the rapture in Matthew 24. That's very clear. And one of their main arguments they use is that matthew 24 is not the rapture but we do we believe and i believe that the after the tribulation documentary it has forced baptists into admitting that angels do in fact gather the elect after the sun and moon are darkened which is the sixth seal that it happens after the tribulation of those days and this has forced many mainstream baptists to a position that i'm here today to tell you they never had And that is that Matthew 24 is not the rapture. All my life I was taught Matthew 24 had the rapture in there. I mean, where do you think the term left behind came from? Two in the field, one taken, another left. Okay? I mean, that has always been used. I have heard that all my life from all kinds of different Baptists that Matthew 24 is the rapture. But now these same ones are saying, nope, that's not the rapture. Nope, that's Armageddon. You know, that's Jesus' second coming. You know, that's not, that is not our rapture. But they have always taught that. And this is a new thing. Now, maybe some of the hardcore dispensationalists, they might have been teaching that a long time ago that it wasn't the rapture. But the mainstream Baptists have been. And I know that for a fact. And so it has been taught. And if Matthew 24 is not the rapture, then that absolutely destroys one of the main doctrines. That the pre-trib rapture teaches and that's the doctrine of imminency because you know in in fact in Tim LaHaye's charting the end times one of the things he has in there is that the pre-trib rapture is the only view that preserves imminency that's one of the reasons we know it's pre-trib because we know the return of christ is imminent the bible teaches imminency i mean it's all over the bible how many times you all see you know how many times is the word imminency in the bible it's all over right it's it's everywhere And so we know that it's imminent, therefore it has to be pre-trip, but here's the thing, it's not. The Bible doesn't teach that it's imminent, but it is just a fact in most people's mind that it does. And so, you know, what is the main verse that everyone uses to teach that the rapture is imminent? Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Verse 42, watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. I just read a thing the other day, you know, trying to defend the pre-trib rapture. And this preacher, in one passage, he taught how Matthew 24 is not the rapture. It is not the rapture of the church, as they like to call it. And then in another chapter, he had a chapter on imminency. And he, guess what verse he used? He used Matthew 24, verse 36, and verses uh, 42 and 44. He used all of those. So it's like Matthew 24 is not the rapture until they're talking about imminency. Then it is the rapture. That, my friends, is a classic example of what happens when you do not rightly divide the word of truth. Okay? I mean, when they'll, they'll preach that sermon, that's not the rapture, that's not the rapture. But then the next day, Okay, when everybody's forgot about their message they preached before because it was so boring and so confusing, they get up and they preach on imminency, and everybody's supposed to have forgotten that no, we already told you Matthew 24 is not the rapture. But they all do it. It is in their writings. I have these things sitting on my desk. They are teaching that and it is a clash because they are not rightly dividing the word of truth. First, and they say, well, you know, those aren't the only verses that teach imminency. It's all over the Bible, it's everywhere. Thousands of verses, all right, you know, it's everywhere. First, for example, all right, well, what are some of those verses? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5:2, for yourself, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. He's coming as a thief in the night. That means it's unexpected, it means it could happen at any moment, it means it's imminent. 1 Thessalonians 5:2 proves that. 2 Peter 3:10. But of the day, day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat the earth also the works are in shall be burned up he's coming as a thief of the night And when you really start pressing it is it's like the closer it's, thief in the night thief of the night you know don't don't tell me anything different he's coming as a thief of the night eminency, imminency eminency. and they'll say these words and listen saying those things repeating thief in the night no man knows the day or the hour it'll get a lot of amens in a pre-trib <laughs> prophecy conference it'll get people fired up but nobody ever does what they should do and stop and think for a second and say wait wait a minute there is a verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, it says the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. That's very clear. And so this, when you show them that, but wait a minute, the sun's darkened, moon turned to blood before the day of the Lord. And the day of the sun's darkened, moon turned to blood after the tribulation. Well, the day of the Lord is not the rapture. But you just told me eminency, is, and they all do that. They use the thief in the night argument as proof of eminency, but then these same people will tell you Matthew 24 is not the rapture, and the day of the Lord is not the rapture. And you all know it. You've heard me talk to some of these Ruckmanites that say the day of the Lord is not the rapture. And But then some of these same people will use the argument that it's imminent, and they'll use the thief in the night term and so that's not fair and listen if matthew 24 is not the rapture if the day of the lord is not the rapture then you just lost almost all of your eminency verses that you have i just took most of them away and when you talk to a pretribber on this if they don't walk away from you after this point the conversation usually starts to get real childish and some of y'all know this because you've had these conversations a thousand times all right listen i'm not preaching to you today i'm not i'm preaching to people out there all right the ones who Wanted to come, but we're afraid to, and are watching online. All right, it, but you know, un- understand that. But th- listen, they things start getting real childish. They quit quoting Bible and they start quoting slogans that get everybody running the aisles in the pre-trib conference. You know, the classic. You know, you're looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. You know, you're looking for the Undertaker. I'm looking for the uppertaker. You know, you know, you can stay behind if you want to, but I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus. You know, while you're down here fighting in the tribulation, I'm going to be up there eating biscuits and gravy and steak at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hey, man! You know, and that case closed, man, and they just, you know, they just destroyed, you destroyed my argument with that. You know, I don't know what to say about that. But you get these things. I've I, I heard all these things over and over again. And it's like, you know, and then it's like, hey, wait, buddy, time out. Those are slogans, all right? Let's use some scripture here. Hey, well, Jesus told us to watch. Jesus told us to watch for His coming. That means it could come at any time. But you know what? They won't quote the Scriptures about watching because where are most of them? Matthew 24! (laughs) See, y'all understand. They know Matthew 24 is the rapture, but they're getting stubborn and they don't want to admit That right there in English in black and white that for some reason for years people just didn't pay attention to it says it happens after the tribulation of those days and I'm sorry my crazy theory I had came up with back in the day just doesn't work All right, and it's it's, there is no way to make it work I tried everything proof of that was my crazy theory that I had I came up with I, I tried to make it fit but you can't do it and so yeah most of those verses about watching they come from the Olivet Discourse which is not supposed to have anything to do with us. And so they try to make the argument that, you know, to command a watch means it could happen at any time. But actually, it means the opposite of that. Because if the rapture is an event that has no signs, we're just walking along one day, boom, we disappear in the twinkling of an eye. You know, wouldn't it mean it's going to come so fast that we're not going to see it coming? So what are we watching for? You know, we're supposed to be watching or something cuz God wants us to know when it's about to happen. So all those verses that pre-tribbers used to use and even still do about us watching, you know, those act, those actually are for us. Those are ones that we're supposed to be paying attention to, but Jesus he does he does he wants us to watch, but he doesn't want us to watch for nothing. He has told us about some things that we need to watch for so we will know when he's about to return. And he told us to watch because he knew there were going to be things to watch for and he didn't want us to just he didn't want us to miss them because I believe it's possible for a Christian to be asleep and not see things coming and not be ready Revelation chapter 3 verse 3 says remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent if therefore thou shalt not watch I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt know what hour I will come upon thee well if we don't watch he's gonna come on as a thief right so if we do watch, doesn't that mean he won't come on us as a thief? Amen. And doesn't that line up with what Paul said, ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief? Yeah. So understand that, you know, the thief and the night thing, and we don't have time to go through all the scriptures on it, but it's very clearly, it talks about he's coming on them as a thief in the night, all right? It's all about them. Sudden destruction is going to come on them, not on us. We're going to see it coming. We're going to be ready for it. And, you know, Jesus, he didn't say that we would never know the day or the hour. I don't know the day or the hour now. Okay? We always get accused of setting dates, all right? And, you know, one of the things that happens when you take this position, it's just part of the territory, is whenever you talk to people and they start losing the arguments, one of the things they all do, their go-to every time, is a Pastor Anderson rumor. Every time. And you You know he sets dates for the rapture? I still haven't found out what date that was. You know, you remember when that was? I don't ever remember You know, I'm supposedly the one that just watches all the stuff and follows everything, but I don't remember that. But these people know for a fact he set the date for the rapture one time. It's like, you know, anything to get you off the subject. And you know, what? I've taken the bait before, and you know, they, I, I've, I've you know, tried to argue these things, but they, they, they can't stick to facts. They can't stick to scripture. But I do. I believe we won't know until it gets very, very close. But we're only going to know if we're watching and so jesus the fact he told us to watch tells us there's going to be some things to watch for not there's nothing to watch for it's just going to happen i don't think god just wants us sitting out there looking at the sky every day just waiting he wants us to do something he doesn't want us to be like the 120 after jesus ascended and the angels had to come along and say you men of galilee why stand you gazing into the heavens didn't jesus tell them to go soul winning didn't He just tell them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Stop standing there waiting for him to return. Stop gazing with your mouths open. Get out there and go do what He told you to do. And I believe that's what God wants us to do. And he, but He wants us to watch, but that means keeping busy. It means paying attention to the signs, watching what's going on. And I believe we're going to know when it gets very, very close. And so we see, though, But you know, the argument to watch means imminency, that, that's just ridiculous. You know, my, my kids... They're already looking for forward to Christmas. But that doesn't mean Christmas is imminent. Okay? Thanksgiving has to come first, doesn't it? Yep. Thanksgiving's got to come before Christmas, but you know, they will. They'll start counting it down, and you know, some of those things, it just means, hey, it's getting closer. You know, Christmas, Christmas is getting closer. And so, you know, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I am looking for Jesus Christ. But listen, the Bible teaches that that day shall not come until the man of sin be revealed and so it's not that i'm looking for the man of sin i'm looking for what's coming after him so you know what i'm going to get a little excited when he's revealed because i'm not, not because i'm looking for him i'm looking for what's after him i'm looking for what's coming next and so understand that these arguments they're using they, they just don't work you know and then they'll say well the apostles they all believed in the imminent return of christ they all taught imminency. they believed he could come in their day but that's just foolish turn over to john chapter 21. they they always use john they try to use john as proof or uh, not john peter i, I haven't told me that all the time and i always tell them tell me that verse tell me the verse where peter teaches imminency, and they always talk about the watching for the day of the lord and all that kind of stuff they always go to the watching but listen i'll prove to you peter did not believe the rapture was going to come in his day, or even could come in his day. It says in John chapter 21, verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Jesus prophesied to Peter that he was going to be martyred, that he was going to die. Therefore... The rapture could not come until after Peter has died. If Jesus said that's going to happen, it couldn't come in his day. And you know what? Peter got it. Peter understood that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, in this tabernacle, this flesh, to stir up you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. You all see that? Peter knew he was going to die. Amen. Peter knew he was going to be martyred. So how could Peter have been looking for the rapture? How could Peter have been teaching imminency? He had to die first. But they still say it over and over again. Well, the Apostle Paul, you know, the Apostle said, we that are alive and remain, you know we so that proves that he thought but listen i believe it's possible that paul thought he could be alive during that time when he said we that are alive or remain he's among the living and if the antichrist would have been revealed if the abomination of desolation would have happened he could have lived until that moment but just the fact that he said we that does not prove that he believed it was imminent when, especially when you read second thessalonians chapter 2 it just means he maybe believed that it could happen in his day you know we see john in Revelation twenty-two verse twenty, they'll say, you know, he was testified these things. Say, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, John was anxious for the coming of Christ, but understand that that's just because he thought he could live through all those events. So, you know, maybe yeah, you can make the argument that the end times events could the, the apostles may have thought they could begin in their day, but you can't make an honest argument that says they believed it was going to happen in their day or that the rapture was imminent. Especially with what we know about Peter, that is absolutely false, that is a bad argument. And you know, listen, we need to understand, when it comes to these things, I do. there's many pre-trib people I believe are good people, I love them, they are not my enemies. But listen, there is a segment of them out there that are just very dishonest people. And we need to be careful not to get too caught up and their conversations, because we need to be able to keep it honest, and they're not going to do it. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, I believe it's time for us to just tell these dispensational salvation three gospel ding dongs to just let them be accursed and just forget them. Just forget them. And you know what? Let's stick to the honest crowd. There's good people out there that want to know the truth, people that aren't all caught up into the politics, and those are the people that we're trying to reach. Let the Ruckmanites have those other people, all right? We don't need them. They're, uh, they're a mess. They need to get saved is what they need to get. And some of them, I think, they're, I think they've crossed the line. I really do. So we need to understand. And so that, that, that argument, Matthew 24 is not the rapture. It just, it fails. And so especially when they teach it's not the rapture and they teach an imminent rapture, it doesn't work. It clashes, classic example of not rightly dividing the word of truth so the second argument i want to look at is that the church has to leave before the antichrist shows up because the church would never fall for the antichrist now listen i heard sam Gipps say this he preached this matthew 24 in context you can go listen to his message and he was ta- he was using Matthew 24, because Jesus talked about false Christs that were going to come, and if they say, lo, here is Christ, or there, you know, believe it not. And he's like, you know, what Christian is going to think that Jesus is out in the desert somewhere, or Jesus is there somewhere? You know, no Christian is going to believe that, but, you know, the Jews would. Well, I'm here today to tell you that I think a lot of people would fall for it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. The Bible clearly teaches that before the gathering, all right, it uses the word gathering, which is the same term Matthew 24 uses, by the way, it teaches that there is going to be a falling away first and so people like no christians would never fall for the antichrist you know christians would never take the mark now listen i don't believe a saved person can take the mark or ever would take the mark all right and that's that's another subject for another day but i do believe a vast majority of church members will i absolutely believe that and listen there was a time when i believe there was a lot of saved people in a lot of different denominations let me ask you, those of you who go soul winning, when was the last time you talked to a Methodist and he gave you the right answers when talking about salvation? You, you don't hear it anymore. I mean, you, can, I, you talk to Baptists all the time that don't give the right answers when it comes to salvation. So what makes us think most of these people sitting in churches today are saved? And if they're not saved, what's gonna stop them from taking the mark? You know, what's the, what, if, if these people are sitting in church with Bibles in their laps, and they don't even understand how to get saved, what makes us think that they won't fall for the Antichrist? That's just a bad argument. And so I, do, you know, I believe proof that, that people would do this, uh, Christian, not Christians, but church members, I guess we should say, would do this is all the false doctrine being taught in churches. See, no, no, Nobody would ever fall the, for the Antichrist. But listen, a while back, you just said, you know Christians would be accepting queers in their church one of these days. Nobody would believe that but are we not living that today you know you might say that Baptists would never take the mark but you know what they're letting preachers come in and preach that there are three gospels so, I mean listen I see how some people get away with things how some things are deceptive but when you have a verse in the Bible that says if any preach any other gospel let him be accursed and then it repeats it again I mean it's real clear it's so clear and yet people miss it. It go right over their head. I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as clear as all get out and people don't see it. You know, you might say they never take the mark, but they don't have a problem with Sam Gibb coming in and saying Jesus isn't his Messiah. He's not your Messiah. He wasn't supposed to be named Jesus. Nobody's going to call him Jesus in the millennium. They're going to call him Emmanuel. That can go on. He can preach that in a Baptist church, in a Bible college. He can get up on a whiteboard and write out the three different Gospels, say they're different Gospels, saying basically he never will come out and say this out loud that Jesus and Paul preach a different Gospel. I mean, to to say that in a Bible college and not get thrown out, why wouldn't I believe Christians would take the mark or church members would take the mark? I absolutely believe it. I absolutely do believe that many people sitting in churches today, if some guy's out in the desert and says that, he, that he's, the, or the, he's the Messiah, that people would believe it. I absolutely believe that. I believe we're right smack dab in the middle of the falling away. I think it's going on right now. And I, it is. It, I, I could see it happening. There was a time when it would be hard to believe. But I believe it is here. And so, you know, you can never lose your salvation, but I'm here today to tell you a vast majority of people who are, who are calling themselves Christians today are not saved. So that's a terrible argument that Christians would never fall for those things. All right. Believers wouldn't, but church members would. Many people sitting in Baptist churches today. Absolutely, would, and we're seeing proof of that. So, the third argument I want to look at, and this is one y'all have heard a million times, and listen, I, I'm preaching to the choir right here in this one, but you know what? I got to do it for those out there, and that is we're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto wrath. But listen, we believe the tribulation and wrath are separate events. Brother Kirchway covered that uh, very well, and there is no way to use the Bible to prove that the tribulation is the wrath of God. We believe the wrath of God begins. On the day of the Lord, immediately after we are taken out. Okay, and, turn, and turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Now listen, I, I, have, t- I have talked to many preachers, and they are, they're admitting, yeah, Matthew 24, that's not the rapture. It is not the rapture. They will admit, you know, the day of the Lord, it comes after the sun is darkened and moon turned to blood. But what they all do, they all go to Revelation 6 and they use verse 17. I'm not, we're not going to take time to read all of chapter 6. But after the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood and they're hiding in the caves and crying out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the Lamb. Okay? It's interesting too, hide us from the face of the Lamb. How do they know who's doing it? Well, it's because, behold, he cometh with clouds and, and every eye shall see him. All right? It's not the secret rapture like they're teaching. They know who's pouring wrath out on them. But when it's verse 17, when it says, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand. Now I have, I've talked to many preachers and they've said that proves all of chapter six is in fact, uh, wrath of God. But th- first of all, you know what? That's stupid. If you just read it, all right, just an understanding of the English language will show you that that's ridiculous. But you know what? I'm, I'll give you that. Okay. Or I will give you that it is not clear. All right. It's not, it's clear enough for us, it's not clear enough for them, okay? But listen, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, I'm going to read just a few verses real quick, okay? We believe that wrath begins at the day of the Lord. And where do we get that? From Isaiah 13, 9, says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger. What's coming with the day of the Lord? Wrath and fierce anger. To lay the land desolate and shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Okay? It says coming with, not coming before. It doesn't say wrath comes before, it comes with. Isaiah 13:13, 13, 13, therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Zephaniah 1:14, the great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. We saw that in Revelation 6. Uh, and the day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. There is no doubt that the day of the Lord is the time when his wrath comes. And the day of the Lord comes after the sixth seal, doesn't it? Why? The sun shall be turned to darkness and moon to blood before the day of the, that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So listen, there's no way you, there is no way to prove that tribulation and wrath are the same thing God's wrath does not come until the day of the Lord and they use the argument we can't be here for the tribulation because we have not been appointed unto wrath but show me where tribulation is the wrath of God I can't I can show you all over the word of the Bible where the wrath comes at the day of the Lord and the Sun is turned to darkness and moon to blood before that happens that is the sixth seal that is what happens after the tribulation of those days. So listen, there is no way. There is absolutely no way and that is the only way. They try to say that verse in chapter 6, it proves it's all wrath, but that is a ridiculous argument and I just proved it to you. I wish I had a microphone to drop. All right, man, but they don't want me doing that. So, you know, God's wrath, it clearly does not come until after the mark of the beast is implemented. All right? And it's important to you know for those who may be listening you need to actually study pastor Anderson's timeline uh, about how revelation is divided up about the uh, vials and the trumpets and I believe pastor Tomlinson is going to be preaching on that I'm not I'm not going to go into those things but revelation chapter 14 in verse 9 it says "And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth yea saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them notice a couple things in this at first it says if you take the mark you will experience the wrath which means it hasn't happened yet okay if part of the judgment of taking the mark is you will experience the wrath of God then that means it has not been poured out yet so how can they say that the wrath of God uh, you, know, is some, you know, we've not been appointed a wrath. The main argument, you know, we got to be out of here before the tribulation because we're out of here before God pours His wrath out. And I agree with that. We are out of here before God pours His wrath out. But we see right here that when they're implementing the mark of the beast, God has not poured His wrath out yet. Right. So where do you get that? Where do you get that? There is no, there is no argument. And so, uh, real quickly, I want to show you also this too. Because this is something people don't talk about. And this, I, I've preached whole messages on this before. I'm going to try to give you a quick version of this. But notice also that term patience of the saints. says here is the patience of the saints. Like it's something that's been talked about. Like it's something that we should know about. Hey, here is the patience of the saints. These people who are not taking the mark. Those who are being killed for their faith. Here is the patience of the saints. Well, what is that? Well, you know, the dispensationalists will scream that's not for us. Because, you know, that that's... You know, that's something that's for you know the Jews. That's not for us. But you know what Romans 5, 3 says? And not only so, but we glory in tribulation, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Y'all see where tribulation and patience kind of go along there? Tribulation worketh patience. We heard Brother Kirchway talk about how, you know, tribulation, persecution, it's one of the best things that ever happens yeah. to believers and to churches. It's the one thing that gets them fired up. And it's the one thing that gets them gets them going. James 1.3 says, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We ought to want to be have patience. We ought to want to be improved. We ought to want to be better. Luke 21.16, And ye shall be betrayed, both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not an hair of your head perish in your patience, possess ye your souls and when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies then know that the desolation thereof is nigh talking about the persecution in your patience possess ye your souls okay revelation 3:10 because thou hast kept the word of my patience I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Revelation 13:7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, lamb of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear to hear, or have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So we see this patience of the saints thing. That is something that is us going through tribulation. It's working patience. It's having a work in our life. It's causing us to do something. And so listen, let's not fear tribulation. Let's embrace it. Let's do what the Bible says. The Bible says leap for joy when we're persecuted. You know what? Let it do a work in your lives. Let it purge us so when Jesus Christ returns he will find us faithful and nothing brings the people of God to life more than some good old-fashioned persecution. Nothing does it more than that. And so if we really believe in eternal rewards, shouldn't we feel privileged to live in a time where the greatest persecution of all time is going to take place? Because it was going to produce the greatest Christians, and it's going to produce the greatest rewards. You know, we do. We listen to all those stories all our life about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stand alone, and, you know, we like to think we do that, too. But what do we do? We all run from the thought of tribulation. Yeah. You know, we have this uh, just, you know, American, I, I call it the American Christian mentality. You know, because I, I, people in other countries don't have the same idea. People in other countries... They, seem to under, they understand persecution. They understand tribulation. But in America, we've been so blessed in this country, God's been so good to us that we've just gotten really spoiled. And we just can't stand the thought, you know, Brother Kirchway is talking about moving. Move, are you serious? You mean I might have to lose my house? You mean I might have to leave behind one of my cars? You know, Are you serious? Boy, I, that's, you know, God wouldn't appoint us to wrath like that and make <laughs> us lose our possessions. Are you serious? Hey, if if we go through things like that, you know, separating father and brother, why why would God do that to us? But, you know, the Bible says, you know, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And so, listen, we ought to be excited about this. So we go through some tribulation for a little while, but the rewards are eternal. You live a life of ease, you live a life of prosperity on this earth, what are your eternal rewards for that? So you want to enjoy 50 60 70 years down here or do you want to enjoy eternity Do you want to have part in that millennial reign of christ and do great things and have a great position we ought to want to be that generation that goes through the tribulation we i mean paul i mean john he wanted to see the return of christ didn't he and you know what that tells me if he saw the tribulation if he saw all those things and he says even so come lord jesus it tells me he wasn't afraid of the tribulation Listen, you know, he wasn't like, "Oh, you know, after seeing those tribulations, he didn't do like Hezekiah and say, you know, well, "I'm glad it didn't come in my day." You know, it's not going to come in my day," you know, "Even so, Lord, you know, wait until the next generation because I don't want to go through that tribulation." No. Bring it. You know, go ahead and come, I'm ready for it, and that ought to be our attitude. You might think, I can't handle it. I don't know if I can handle, you know, I don't know if I can handle the temptation. I don't know if I can handle the persecution. But listen, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. I think it's interesting to mention that too, because one of the things, take the mark and worship the image of the beast, right? And the Bible says that God will make a way of escape. So does that mean... I won't have to make that choice. Well, I also believe it says he'll help you so you be able to bear it. And I do I believe that God will help us get through it. If they tell you you're getting the guillotine, you might think right now I could never do that, but listen, if you're saved, God'll give you the strength to do it. Trust him. The Bible talks about how, you know, the beast, how he prevailed over them, but they overcame him. Because they loved not their lives even to the death. And we see, too, it also talks about they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So, yes, we will overcome, we will defeat him, but how do we do it? We do it through Jesus Christ, okay? So, listen, if I get my head cut off, I'm not going to brag about how brave I was when I get to heaven. Listen, I'm scared to death of pain, all right? I don't even, I, I don't like, I don't like any type of pain. I'm terrified of surgeries. I had one little surgery where they did one of these tiny little incisions. I was scared to death of that, all right? You think I want my head cut off? Absolutely not. Listen, if I'm able to do that, it's because God gave me the strength to do it. He's going to get all the credit. I'll have nothing to boast of for that. And so, once again, when you show them these things, it starts to get childless again. The slogans come. Jesus isn't a wife beater. You know, Why would Jesus slap his bride right before he comes to claim his bride? Well, listen, was Jesus slapping his bride when the early church was being persecuted? When Christians were being fed to the lions, when they were being you know, was Jesus doing that to them? Was that him slapping the bride? Did Jesus slap his apostles when they were being persecuted? Did Jesus break his promise about his life the life of ease that he promised to his followers? Oh wait, he didn't make that promise, did he? Or did he keep his promise about having tribulation in the world? So that's a terrible that's not him slapping the bride. You look at all the things in the tribulation. This is the antichrist doing these things. And listen, persecution has been going on for 2,000 years and it was never Jesus slapping his bride. It, okay, that's, that's a terrible, terrible argument. And so, and I throw that and usually when it goes, when you get to that, you know, you get him back in the corner. you know Pastor Anderson's funded by Hamas? You know, you get one of the Pastor Anderson rumors, you know, he's really a CIA operative. You know, I, I, I'm, I have had preachers tell me these things. Those of you that saw the interview I did with them, those questions I asked them, I wasn't just be. I, I was being stupid. Alright, but at the same time, it was inspired by real stupidity, alright, things that (laughs) preachers have actually said to me, serious, why would you listen to that guy? And first of all, I'm like, dude, why am I listening to him? Didn't I just show you a whole bunch of scripture? I showed you all that scripture, and all you can get is I'm just copying Pastor Anderson. Listen, yeah, he might preach that, but I'm not going to let him hog all the truth. I'm not going to let him do that, and so, you know, but... It, they do. they got to make it all about a person. And there's a reason for that. I might get into that in one of my other points if I have time. But look, uh, the, the fourth thing we see is they'll use is it's like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. As it was in the days of Noah, the days of Lot. Okay, well, what does that mean? What is as in the days of Noah and Lot? Well, it means it was a surprise is what they tell us. You know, and if the tribulation comes first, nobody's going to be surprised. But what about the days of Noah and Lot? You know, I, I won't have to be here any, you know, for any of the tribulation no more than Noah had to tread water. I've heard that one used many times. Many times I've heard that one. You know, but what, I heard somebody say too, no, when notice that Noah, he went into the ark before the rain started. When the floods came, he was on top of the water. We will be above the tribulation in heaven and then he came out of the ark after the water went down. You know, just stupid arguments like that. I was like, are you serious? Because it does say, as in the days of Noah. Well, what does that mean, as in the days of Noah? Well, turn, Luke chapter 17, verse 26, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. They take that verse there and say, look, everything's normal. Everybody's going on their merry way. Nothing's happening. And that's how it's going to be. It's going to be a normal day. Then just one day, boom, we're gone. But no, that's not what that's saying right there. Let's keep reading. Likewise, also, it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But this is what it means when it says, as in the days of Noah and as in the days of Lot. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed what it means is in the days of Noah and Lot it means as soon as God got his people out judgment came immediately that's what that means and what these in the post trib doctrine is the only doctrine that teaches Jesus immediately pouring out his wrath after the rapture what is your common pre-trib story or your common left-behind story rapture one day and of course you have the chaos of, you know every pilot was saved and all the planes are crashing <laughs> all the cars are crashing you know just billions of people gone even the Pope was gone in the left-behind books even the Pope but he was a radical Pope talking about just living by faith and stuff so it was okay they didn't want to offend the Catholics I guess but but then, you know, there's like this three and a half years that's not so bad. You know, the Antichrist comes along does this fake peace deal and all that stuff. But listen, that's not, once again, where, how are those things God immediately pouring out his wrath? We see that God immediately pours his wrath as soon as they come out. And it's clearly the wrath of God. And when you read the book of Revelation, we don't have time to look at all the references. What are they doing? They're blaspheming him. Why? Because they know who's doing it. They saw him come in the clouds too. And they, they know who it is, and so that is, the, their Noah and Lot argument is just ridiculous. It's just them not looking at the scripture in context. It's them attaching a definition to something, to a term that is not biblical. And you're not allowed to do that. That's not fair. So the fifth argument, and I hear this one over and over again to the point, I just want to beat my head against the wall, but all the great men believed in the pre-trib rapture. All the great men. Listen, if you're ever preaching at a meeting and you're just kind of losing the crowd, one of the things you can always do, a good go-to, I've learned this from all the camp meetings I've been to in my life. Just, you know, the crowd's kind of going to sleep, getting quiet, just, just start naming the great men. You know, Jack Hiles, you know, hey, man, you know, Oliver B. Green, you know, Lester Roloff, you know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll name off all these, you know, Billy Sunday, Charles Finney, you know, those, those, and people just start going nuts. And they start saying all these names. And I will, I'll give all these people, I'll show all these scriptures, and then their go-to is all the great men. And listen, I'm thankful for the great men. I'm not bashing any of these, you know, I, I, I would bash some of those guys I named, but a lot of them actually were great. I even believe some of them were great. And I believe we should, you know, we can honor them. I think we can learn from them. But, you know, one thing that we often forget that they taught us is that by their own admission, they weren't perfect. They were only men. According to their own instructions, we should let the Bible be the final authority. They taught us that. And I don't believe it's wrong for us to agree with the great men when it comes to them being flawed. And, you know, I believe we should learn from their mistakes. But because preachers, they have, it's like they've invested so much time into covering their lies. Because, you know, the areas where they were wrong, it's like i got to remain loyal to these people. These people would roll up in their grave. You're telling me I need to dig up Jack Hiles and Lester Roloff, and I need to tell them that they were wrong. These men who just poured themselves in Scripture, i got to tell them they were wrong. And little two-by-squirt, Tommy McMurtry, only 30-something years old with a church of 50, figured out something that they couldn't figure out. That's what I hear. But listen, they like to bring up the dead men, their dead forefathers, But you know, Matthew 22, verse 31 says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Listen, I believe those men are in heaven right now. Some of those ones I mentioned. I believe they're in heaven right now. And I believe they're now in agreement with the perfect word of God. And so you know what? I'll be loyal to those who are living not to the dead flawed corpse that they want to be loyal to. And I'm telling you, this loyalty to the pre-trib doctrine that they can't even defend, that they got to bring in all these weirdo ruckmanites to defend for them because they don't know how to do it, they don't have any consistency at all, these people, their loyalty is to the dead. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so, listen, and I, I'm not going to go into all the scriptures on this, I need, I need to move on. But you know, it's easier to trust in a system of men than it is to trust in the word of God itself. Why do you think so many people follow the Catholic Church? Look how big it is. I mean, look how gigantic it is. What an institution it is. And people, they wonder after that, and they, they admire it, and they are willing to follow it. But listen, when it comes to the word of God, you know, the Bible says it just shall live by faith. We're supposed to believe what the word of God says, and you know what, that's hard sometimes. I thank God that Pastor Anderson would, was able went and put himself out on a limb like he did, and was preaching this when hardly anybody was preaching it. You know, I feel like I'm just kind of a bandwagon guy myself. I don't feel like I've really done much of it. I thank God he did that. Listen, that took a lot of faith. Uh, when the entire institution, when the entire independent Baptist denomination is coming down on them, saying all the things that they've said about him, you know, it'd be real easy to say, forget you people. I'm gonna go start my own Andersonite denomination, like they're already accusing them of doing anyway, might as well do it. But you know what it does, it actually takes faith to believe the Bible when everyone else is telling you something different. And they are, these people, they're loyal to institutions of men and the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Where does that teach loyalty to men right there? Let God be true and every man a liar, and we all agree with that except when it comes to the great men in our lives. You know when it comes to our pastors and our, our our forefathers, but listen, we can't let them drag us into that great men argument because it's not an argument. You know, if we really believe that God be true and every man a liar, we're not even going to go into that. And so, the sixth argument we'll look at real quick: the pre-trib doctrine is old, and the post-trib doctrine is new. Okay, and you know, older proves what is true. But look, go to Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen. And I refuse to even go into this argument with them because it's, this also is not an argument. Second Peter 1.16 says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, and we have made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this with our own eyes. For he received from God the Father, honor, and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came to heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but a holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We see Peter here, he was an eyewitness of the majesty and the glory of God, but he says, You know what? I got something better for you. I got the word of God. And so we do, we see the Word of God is what proves what's true, nothing else. And people always, you know, Sam Gipp at the anti-Anderson conference, you know, he did the big reveal of the Ephraim the Syrian writing. You know, from like the 300s. Who's Ephraim the Syrian, and who cares? You know, who cares? That's, that's from the 4th century, these people trying to say the pre-trib things new. You know, it, it, is, it is a hoax. And you know what, there's more than one translation of that, and I brought that up one time, I got accused of being James White. And it's like I didn't realize Ephraim the Syrian was inspired writing but listen even if that is exactly what he said even if that's the case do we not read in the book of Acts that false doctrine was coming into the church even then did not Paul have to withstand Peter himself to the face at one time listen even the guys who wrote our Bible were flawed and made mistakes but thank God when it came to their writings God inspired them he moved them to write down his words and God preserved his word for us and listen if you 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 might be able to find a historical book written by the apostle Paul himself but if it goes against anything that's in our Bible we should not follow it because we don't follow men we follow the word of god and so who cares about who what historical figures believe what that's a joke that is not an argument the bible proves what is true nothing else so then real quickly these ones are fast the bible says comfort one another with these words i get that all the time nope the bible says comfort one another with these words comfort that means we're not going to have to be tribulation. Comfort, it means that the rapture could come at any moment, right? Isn't that what that means? But listen, they never look at context. Why did he say comfort one another with these words? Because he said, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He said comfort each other with the fact that you're going to see your loved ones again. Amen. Not that you're not going to go through tribulation. Not that the rapture could come at any moment. I had somebody one time give me an argument that Comforting one another means, the rapture could happen at any moment, it mean, and he went, and then also to help back that up, he did all these verses about comfort. So now, all of a sudden, every time you see the word comfort in the Bible, it's a reference to the rapture and that we're not going to have to be in tri- here in tribulation. That is the type of thing that we are up against. That is the type of arguments that we're getting. That's how desperate they are right now. That is a joke. They'll say, you're taking away my blessed hope. <laughs> yep. You're taking away my blessed hope. I don't have time to go in the scriptures on this. But listen, the blessed hope, it's a biblical term, and it's one that has a biblical definition. Okay, I could say, if I say, you know, I believe I'm going to win the lottery tomorrow. And you're like, no, I don't think you're going to win the lottery. How dare you take away my blessed hope? <laughs> Bible says looking for that blessed hope. And I believe the blessed hope is that I'm going to win the lottery. Well, listen, you're not allowed to do that. You don't just get to take a biblical term and attach whatever definition you want to it and they say too that the blessed hope and glorious appearing are different events the glorious appearing is armageddon the blessed hope is the rapture but if you look at if you look at context if you actually read all of titus chapter 2 if you read romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 30 if you'll read colossians 3 through 4 our blessed hope it's not the rapture the blessed hope is that one day our vile body is going to be changing a body like his glorious body. Our blessed hope is that one day we won't be sinful anymore and our blessed hope just happens to come at the rapture. So the blessed hope, yes, it is a, When is. We're looking for the blessed hope. We're looking for the rapture. But I'm looking for the, forward to the day when I'm not going to have to deal with sin anymore. That is a hope that I have that one of these days I won't struggle with sin. And when does that happen? It happens at the glorious appearing. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. We know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The blessed hope, it's not necessarily the rapture, the blessed hope is that we will be like Christ one of these days. And that will happen at his glorious appearing when we see him and we're changed, to be like him in the moment in a twinkling of an eye. And so, the final, the final one, I'm going I'm to skip... Uh, the one argument there. I I think Brother Major might be covering some of that in his, so you're you're not missing anything. But the 10th thing, this is a big hardcore dispensationalist, ruckmanite line that they like to use. Things that are different are not the same. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, not the same thing. Where do you see the dead rising in Matthew chapter 24? Things that are different are not the same, is what they'll keep saying. But listen, You know, it's a great slogan. They use it often to defend the King James, which I'm for defending the King James, but they do. They use that to make that argument. But listen, if I was to give a description, all right, if we had two people give a description of me and they said he's wearing a black pinstripe suit, he's wearing a a blue shirt, uh, you know, a blue and gray tie, he's got blonde comb over hair, and then another person, they give the same description. They say, you know, black pinstripe suit, blue shirt, tie, blonde comb over hair. And a beard and then the police are like oh man we thought it was the same guy but he he added the beard in there (laughs) things that are different are not the same and so now we know that he's talking about two different people but listen it's not that sometimes people give different descriptions as long as those things don't clash with each other then we don't have a problem and there is no clash with 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew chapter 24. Just because they give different details, it does not make them different events. That's a stupid argument. And if they're going to be consistent, then they need to admit that Jesus Christ died on the cross four times because it's mentioned in four Gospels and all four of them gave different details and things that are different are not the same. But you all see how stupid that is. And that using that argument to prove those things are not the same, it is a joke. In court, two witnesses who give different details that don't conflict actually give credibility if they all gave the same description in the exact same order then it's going to look rehearsed it's going to look planned but when they do when they show different things and from different perspectives the fact that they fit together it proves the truth and that's exactly what we see in all the in all the references to the rapture and there's many of them in the bible they all give different details, but none of them conflict with each other. If there was a conflict, then yeah, we would say things that are different are not the same. But it's not they're different. They're, yes, there's different details, but there's no conflict. Therefore, you cannot use that to say that it is a different event. So, and that's exactly what they do with the three gospel thing. Well, when he mentions the everlasting gospel, they don't say anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's a different gospel. No, it's not. Okay, the fact that it says gospel. All right. I mean it, it's implied there okay we see multiple titles of the gospel Paul called it my gospel you know the gospel of peace the gospel of the grace of God there's all kinds of names and there's a lot of things that are involved in the gospel and it's like if you don't name every single one of those things the same way every single time they say it's a different gospel and that's just a joke there's only one gospel and you know what? None of those things that are talked about in any reference to the gospel conflict with each other. So you can't say that they're different. That is a terrible, terrible argument. So listen, the reason this pre-trib argument or doctrine has got to go is because even though it might be innocent on the surface, listen, I was pre-trib for a long time, and I don't believe I was a bad person. I loved the Lord. I was sincere, you know. But I, I was just—I was wrong. I, I, you know, I was in error, and I thank God. God brought me out of it, but. It is, it's something that's not a salvation issue, but like all false doctrines, it leads to another false doctrine. And this pre-trib doctrine is a sacred cow amongst Baptist churches that they refuse to let go of, and their stubbornness, okay? They have been, this has been exposed, all right? It's out there. The truth is out there. Their stubbornness is causing them to embrace some very dangerous doctrines, like dispensationalism, like Zionism. And listen, the Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And you know we shouldn't be willing to put up with any false doctrine Amen. we should not be okay with that god did not do the miracle of perfectly preserving his word every word of it so we could get careless with the scriptures okay. we don't need to be sloppy and careless let's keep the bible the final authority of all faith and practice so let's pray dear lord i thank you so much for this opportunity lord i'm humbled to be able to be here and preach on this. And dear God, I pray you will use this message, Lord. Help people to just uh, to be sincere, Lord, to let you be true and every man a liar. I pray that they won't get all caught up in institutions. And uh, I, I pray, Lord, you'll help them overcome the pride and the stubbornness of their hearts, and they will accept the truth on these things. I pray you'll bless the remainder of the today's events. In your name we pray, amen. amen.